Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Lindsay Childs-Keen, a clinical assistant professor from the University of Florida College of Pharmacy and an infectious disease pharmacist with UF Health. With me today is Monica Mahoney, a clinical pharmacy specialist from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Thanks for joining us today, Monica. Thanks for having me. Today's topic, advances in hepatitis C management. So Monica, tell us a little bit about where we stand today. How many new infections of hepatitis C are there each year in the United States? So in 2017, which is the latest data that we have, a total of 3,216 cases of acute hepatitis C were reported to the CDC. However, because hepatitis C can be asymptomatic and a number of people would not have been tested, there's a significant issue of underreporting. So the CDC estimates that 44,700 acute hepatitis C cases occurred in 2017. The CDC also estimates that 2.4 million people in the U.S. currently have either acute or chronic hep C. Lindsay, can you tell us what the major complications of hep C are and how many people die of it? So over half of all patients who are infected with hepatitis C go on to develop chronic infection. This chronic infection is largely asymptomatic, but can lead to end-stage liver disease and its associated conditions like variceal hemorrhage, hepatic encephalopathy, and ascites. Some patients will develop liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma from their hepatitis C infection. About 1 to 5% of all patients infected will die of hepatitis C-related conditions. In 2017, over 17,000 U.S. death certificates had hepatitis C recorded as an underlying or contributing cause of death, but based on some other studies, this is likely a very large underestimation. So let's move on to talking about screening for hepatitis C. Monica, what are the most recent screening guidelines, and how do they differ from previous guidelines, and why were these changes made? They've gone through quite some revisions recently. So in 1998, the CDC recommended hepatitis C screening based on risk factors. Patients who ever injected drugs, patients who are on long-term hemodialysis, had abnormal LFTs, patients who received clotting factor concentrations before 1987, or patients who received a blood transfusion or organ transplant prior to 1992 were recommended to be screened. In 2002, the NIH put forth similar recommendations, only they also included patients who are HIV positive. Yeah, that's right, Monica. And then several years later, a large analysis revealed that approximately 75% of hepatitis C patients were born between 1945 and 1965, so-called baby boomer age. Beyond the potential typical risk factors associated with that generation of free love and drug use, patients in that age bracket were more likely have hepatitis C, linked back to before we had adequate screening methods for donated blood and blood products. Based on this, and more importantly, on the advances of drug therapy, it was shown to be cost-effective to test and treat this patient population. Therefore, in 2012, the CDC recommended updated guidelines that in addition to patients with aforementioned risk factors, anyone born between 1945 and 1965 should have a one-time hepatitis C test performed. 
as you can imagine, it was difficult to get patients to opt into testing as there was a lot of stigma attached to the diagnosis. Oh, yeah. In fact, I remember a huge public health campaign and push with posters and uh, campaigns on things like bus stops and whatnot to destigmatize the testing and actually get patients in to get the test done. And I remember having some interesting conversations with my parents trying to convince them to get tested. So then in another analysis performed in 2017, it revealed that the age group for the majority of new hepatitis C diagnoses were in the 20 to 29 year old group with a rate of 2.8 cases per 100,000 persons, followed by the 30 to 39 year old group with a rate of 2.3 cases per 100,000 persons. The baby boomers that we were just talking about, who were then at least 60 years old, their rate was only 0.3 cases per 100,000 years. So the opioid epidemic with the increase in injection drug use was also partially responsible for this increase in new hepatitis diagnosis in younger patients. So this year in 2020, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the CDC, and the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases all released guidelines encouraging opt-out one-time testing for all patients aged 18 or older and periodic testing based on risk factors. So that means we all need to get tested now. <laughs> uh, no, Lindsay, you mentioned that improvement in therapy in part prompted the change for the 2012 guidelines. Let's talk about the therapies for a bit. The first therapies for hepatitis C consisted of daily injectable interferon and oral ribavirin. A pegylated form of interferon eventually decreased the frequency of injections, but it didn't really improve on the side effects. Oh gosh, the side effects. It was essentially like self-administering the flu every single week. Severe fatigue, myalgias, headache, chills, nausea, vomiting, anemia. And then there were the mental health issues up to including suicidal ideation and attempts. And unfortunately, the side effects didn't really improve over time while the patient was taking the drug. Can I share a story? So. Thank you. Uh, during my PGY2 longitudinal rotation, I was actually in a hepatitis C clinic and I had to counsel patients about to start therapy with interferon and ribavirin. And hands down, that was my worst counseling sessions ever. Because how do I sell people on taking this medication to cure, and that was said with air quotes, their hepatitis C if the side effect profile was so bad? I wouldn't be surprised if I actually convinced some patients not to start therapy because of what I told them. That's very true. And for what? A 30 to 40% cure rate, depending upon genotype and luck? Yeah, terrible. Um, but a quick note on genotypes. So there are actually six genotypes of hepatitis C, labeled as 1 through 6, with one being special and having subtypes 1A and 1B. Now, in the U.S., genotype 1 accounts for about 75% of the hepatitis C infections, followed by genotypes 2 and 3. But outside of the U.S., other genotypes are more common. So Going back to the interferon and the ribavirin and their abysmal cure rates, what happened next? Tilaprevir and bosepravir. Tilaprevir and bosepravir. Lindsay, can you tell our listeners what tilaprevir and bosepravir are? I'm sure there are many listeners who are not familiar with these medications, and for very good reason. Yeah, so bosepravir and tilaprevir were heralded as game changers. They were the first direct-acting antivirals available, meaning that they were the first drugs to work directly on the steps in the hepatitis C life cycle, stopping. They were protease inhibitors, but they still had to be given in combination with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, so we didn't get away from most of the nasty side effects. 
Also, they only worked for genotype 1 patients, so there were a number of patients that didn't qualify for these new drug therapies. However, for patients who had genotype 1 and tolerated the treatment, the chance of treatment success was up to about 75%. And so because of their incredible efficacy endpoints, it now became feasible and cost-effective to treat hepatitis C. So hence the 2012 updates to test the baby boomers. And then 2014, 2015 roll around, and the manufacturers stop making telaparavir and bosaparavir. They just stop. They willingly withdrew the medications from the market, starting with sofosparavir in 2014. Whereas bosaparavir and telaparavir were protease inhibitors, the new DAAs target several different enzymes, including the NS3 and 4A protease, the NS5B RNA polymerase, and the NS5A protein. Using combinations of the new DAAs, we can treat with an all-oral regimen, sometimes with only one tablet daily, for much shorter, as short as eight weeks, depending on genotype and comorbid conditions, with efficacy rates approaching, get this, 99%, and with much more tolerable adverse reaction profiles. The most common side effects now are headache and fatigue. So with the new DAAs, we can finally say that we can cure hepatitis C in most cases. Monica, some of the most rewarding moments of my professional career have been making phone calls to patients to tell them that they have been cured of hepatitis C. Definitely the highlight of my day or week. That is incredible. Uh, Lindsay, how have you seen the patient population change over the course of time? Yeah, so when the DAA started to come out, there was this big backlog of patients who had hepatitis C for decades, but either were ineligible or were unwilling to take it due to the side effects. So when we could offer all oral therapy in 8 to 12 weeks, we had a lot of patients jumping at the chance to be treated. This was particularly the case in the Veterans Affairs healthcare system, where special funding was allocated to cover the cost of treatment for veterans. And it worked. The VA announced that in 2019, over 100,000 veterans had been treated and cured of hepatitis C. So that's absolutely amazing data coming out of the VA. Monica, who are you seeing in clinic for hepatitis C treatment now? Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, by 2017, we had treated a number of baby boomers and more new cases of hep C were being seen in patients in their 20s or 30s mostly owing to the opioid epidemic and injection drug use. So this is a big shift in who our patients are now. Yeah, and I've seen similar changes as well. So what have you seen are some of the challenges in this different patient population? Oh, wow, great question. Um, There's still a stigma attached to it, or maybe the younger generation doesn't know that it's now recommended to get tested. So linkage to care is an issue. Pharmacy restriction is also an issue. These medications are expensive. In the non-VA system, oftentimes patients are restricted to which pharmacies they're allowed to use. And these may differ from their normal pharmacies, you know, the pharmacists that they have a relationship with. Although the regimens and the pill burdens have much improved, adherence is still an issue. Having to take a medication every day when maybe you're not taking medications previously, that's still something that patients need to get used to. And well, since we're a pharmacist, I'd be remiss if I did not mention the drug-drug interactions. And, you know, Monica, another thing that I worry about, since a lot of these cases we're seeing now are in patients who inject drugs, is not treating the underlying condition. Without addressing the core of the problem and help patients recover from substance use, the risk of reinfection is all too real. 
Oh, absolutely. I completely agree, Lindsay. And many clinics and clinicians who treat hepatitis C are also very passionate about medication-assisted treatment or harm reduction. But I feel like that's another topic for another day. Hint, hint. Yes, I absolutely agree with you, Monica. (laughs) So let's shift gears a little bit. What's one of your most reliable resources that you go to when you're working with hepatitis C patients? Oh, yeah. So bookmark these. Uh, The first is the AASLD, American Association for the Study of Liver Disease Hep C Guidelines. It's a very easy to remember website, hcvguidelines.org. They are a must-read, very thorough on the evidence behind screening and treatment. And additionally, they're electronic, which means that real-time updates uh, occur whenever new data comes out. How about you, Lindsay? So one of my favorite hepatitis C-related resources is the drug-drug interaction database from the University of Liverpool. It's available at hep-druginteractions.org. It tells you if a medication is not recommended in various degrees of hepatic impairment, which is an extra bonus that you don't Mm -hmm. get in some other resources. So Monica, we are almost out of time. Do you want to leave our listeners with any final thoughts about hepatitis C treatment? Man, time flies when we're talking about hep C. Um, So two things I want to leave everyone with is that remember all adults are recommended to be screened at least once for hepatitis C. So get yourself screened at your next appointment. And also remember that treatment now is as short as 8 to 12 weeks with an all oral regimen and a very, very high chance of treatment cure. Yes, we've certainly come a long way in a very short amount of time for hepatitis C. So that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Monica Mahoney for joining us today to discuss hepatitis C management. Thank you, Monica. Thanks, Lindsay, for having me. I had a blast. Join us here every Thursday where we will talk with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.